electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Scott. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Dominic Chu, and here's what's ahead on the show. Our market guest says investors are paying too much attention to rate cuts and not enough to something else that could become a headwind for global markets. He tells us what that is and what he's buying right now. Plus, most people probably wouldn't want to live at the gym, but Lifetime is throwing its weight behind that strategy. Shares are soaring on the back of earnings. The CEO joins us live ahead. And three more names on deck to report, including one that's been under a lot of pressure, and that's why our trader likes it. That's ahead in earnings exchange. But when you get in with the markets right now, it's pretty much red across the board, as you're seeing right there. The Dow Industrials currently just about down one quarter of one percent. Similar percentage moves for the S&P 500, currently at 5,066. And the Nasdaq Composite, 15,950, down one half of one percent. Meanwhile, it's been a wild ride for Bitcoin prices today, which currently, I'll tell you, stand at 61,000 and change. It's up about seven and a half percent right now. At one point, it topped just around 64,000. It touched that level before backing off below 60,000. A bit of a wild ride, but it's important because these are the highest levels going back to near record high levels that we saw back in November of 2021. That was just around 68,800 or so. So keep that in mind as we watch Bitcoin prices. And by the way, Check out the stocks in that Bitcoin ecosystem. We're talking names like MicroStrategy, which owns Bitcoin on its balance sheet, north of $11 billion at this point. Marathon Digital is one of those miners out there. It's up big today, too. And Coinbase, one of the exchange operators, up 2.5% to 3% right now. We'll start with some fresh data on the economy and fresh comments from Fed speakers. This as we're counting down to tomorrow's very important PCE inflation report. Steve Leisman is here with the latest details there. Steve. Yes, uh, Dom, thanks. New York Fed President John Williams saying he expects inflation to return to 2%, but it's going to be bumpy along the way. He expects slower GDP growth. Uh, we did get a GDP report this morning that was a little bit slower for the fourth quarter. Still running pretty strong for the first quarter here. Uh, Williams says the labor market should be returning to normal over time. It is already shown some signs of that. Um, he says that the uh, journey to 2% inflation is not yet over and it still has a ways to go. Now, I don't know if this is significant or not, but last week he talked to Axios. He talked about uh, his expectation that the Fed, uh, it would be appropriate to be cutting rates later this year. He doesn't mention that in his speech. Maybe it's an oversight. He'll be talking to reporters later today. We'll see if he does repeat that. Susan Collins from the Boston Fed says the Fed is likely to ease policy later this year. She does pick up the mantle on that. Sees rates declining only gradually, however, and expects the economy will eventually slow but it says it's essential not to ease too soon or to wait too long. Finally, she does not believe that wage increases are fueling inflation. For now, it looks like the Fed is winning the debate over the rate outlook. 
uh, both economists in the NAEB survey and the futures market have come to where the Fed outlook is. You can see there for this year, it's four sixes across the board, except for the futures market is just a little bit below at four and a half. But uh, just call that uh, uh, even right there. For next year, a little bit of disagreement, but plenty of time to get there. Tomorrow, as you say, Don, we get that PCE. I think the market is already girded for a uh, above average PCE, and I think we're in this very, very long holding period until we can get those February inflation numbers to perhaps uh, give us motion one way or the other. Is it fair to say, Steve, then, that the markets are prepared, even if hypothetically there is a hotter inflation print or even hotter than what some whisper numbers have, the market's fairly braced, right? We're still hovering near record highs for the equity side of things. The interest rate market has seen some volatility drip out of it. This is a good spot, right, given expectations and what's happening with rates. I like the way you put that, Dom. And let's remember that the market has withstood this uh, increase in rates, in other words, decrease in the outlook for Fed rate cutting this year, um, and the disappointment on inflation and stayed relatively buoyant. I think there is tolerance within a, there is tolerance with a certain amount. I think a big blowout would obviously be something the market would um, uh, would be concerned about. Uh, there's a general feeling that some of what we saw in the January numbers, Dom, were one-time items. And I'm looking at March rate cuts completely written off, May almost completely written off, and they're starting to have some doubts about June, Dom, which is down near 65%. Remember, this was up near 100% not that long ago. So this later this year mantra that the Fed keeps putting out sure sounds like a back half of the year thing for me more and more as I listen to them keep saying it's going to be bumpy and it'll be appropriate to cut later this year. And I'm interested to see if John Williams... uh, he, he dropped that phrase intentionally, or maybe it was just an oversight. I mean, Steve, also the Susan Collins comments, this idea that you don't want to wait too long, right, just in case things kind of go a little bit wonky in the back half of the year. Is there a sense right now that this economy does need to have, does require to have interest rate cuts in order to keep things active or are things in stasis for a good while? There is not, Dom. And I, I, from the minutes last week and, um, and all the Fed rhetoric, I do not hear a strong or outspoken um, or eager dovish wing of the, uh, of the FOMC right now. Uh, you had Schmidt weigh in for the first time, the new Kansas City Fed president, not surprisingly talking about the idea that the Fed, uh, that he thinks the Fed ought to be waiting, ought to be very patient here. I don't see anybody itching to cut right now, Dom. And in direct answer to your question, I do not hear folks saying that we have a big risk of getting this wrong by remaining too tight. What Susan Collins said was a balanced statement, not one that suggests she's overly concerned about waiting too long. All right. Steve Leisman with the latest state of play on interest rates ahead of the PC tomorrow. Thank you very much. Now, markets are concerned about the timing of the Fed rate cuts that could happen. But our next guest says he's worried about something else entirely. And that's China's real estate problem and the potential risk that poses for the global economy due to the ripple effects. So joining me now is Charles Robrinskoy, the vice chairman and head of investment group at Ariel Investments. Charlie, it's good to see you here. We had an extensive conversation just now. You heard it with Steve about the interest rate outlook and how that factors. But why is the China situation so far removed across the Pacific, but albeit in the world's second biggest economy, how could it have that many ripple effects that it would really be something to worry about here? Thanks, Dom. You always want to look at what the market is focused on and then see, is the market not focused on something important? Right now, 
the market is very focused on interest rates and the timing. And we would argue that five years from now, it's not going to make much difference whether we get a cut in rates in March or in July or even August. Uh, we think we are going to get cuts. So the market is too focused on that topic. The topic it's not focused enough on is China. And China, the growth of China over the last 20 years was fueled by construction, much of it residential construction. And the market does understand that there is a problem, but it doesn't understand the size of this problem. This is the second largest economy in the world whose growth was fueled by constructing uh, apartment buildings. Many of those apartment buildings uh, were used as investment vehicles. They are not occupied, and they were trading at multiples of rent way out of line with the rest of the world. And so we have this bubble that is not simple to fix. In the U.S., you had in, 20, in 2007, 2008, the government came in and bailed out countrywide via uh, mergers. Many of the largest providers of mortgage debt were bailed out by the U.S. government. That cannot happen in China because so much of this is owned by the population, which is used apartment buildings as a saving vehicle. So we now have people with massive losses that they have not taken on their net worth, and that is going to have a big impact on China. Frankly, we think for the next five to eight years, this is not a problem that's going to get fixed in one year. Last point is this is going to affect us because China pur purchases a lot of raw materials for that construction boom. Uh, copper is the obvious example. Steel, however, is going to be affected by this. I happen to personally think it's not going to have mu as much impact on oil because oil is not as used in the construction process. But many commodities are going to be hit, and that is not getting the attention we think it deserves. Charlie, they also buy a whole heck of a lot of U.S. Treasury debt as well, so that's something to focus on there, too. Uh, I wonder, you mentioned some of the commodities, raw materials industries that could be on the front lines of any kind of decline here. How bad could it be? In your mind, I mean, I'm not asking, I know there's not a crystal ball per se, but when you have a problem like Evergrande and Country Garden in China, what exactly does that do? Does that lead to a 5 to 10% drop in the U.S. markets, a 10 to 20% drop? Are we going to see something like we saw two to three years ago where things kind of go really bad for the tech sector especially? Yeah, it is, it is um, hard to, to put a number here. Um, and I, I would say the good news is that uh, much of the commodity inflation that we got two or three years ago at the beginning of the inflation numbers has already come out of many of these uh, industrial materials. So it is hard to put a number on, but I, I do think you can be thinking about declines of 10 to 25 percent in some of the more um, sensitive names that are sensitive to construction. Uh, and then again, declining growth uh, in the overall economy in China, which has been so important to global growth, and particularly, frankly, to the Asian economies, uh, is just going to be less than it has been for the last 10 years. The last point to make on this is the demographic trends are absolutely terrible. And those are starting to be understood that we are not going to have growth in China's population. We are actually going to have decline. We're going to have an aging population. And that is, again, going to reduce growth in China for a long time. All right. So there is the case to be made for why you would maybe want to de-risk a little bit if you want, given some of those headwinds. I wonder, let's go the other side. There have got to be places in the market that you think could benefit over the course of the, say, medium to longer term and still represent values that are attractive to put new money to work right now. What types of stocks would those be? 
They'd be small and mid cap value stocks. And, and you're going to, your listeners are going to know that I am talking my book since we at Ariel do manage small and mid cap value stocks. But there's been a lot of talk about how the market is overvalued. The Russell 2500 value index is trading at only 13.7 times earnings, very reasonable value. And within that, there are a lot of housing stocks in the U.S. that have been hurt by high interest rates, by the jump in mortgage rates. Names like Mohawk, which make tiles and carpeting, uh, we think are very attractively priced. We think that actually the auto industry, there are some auto supply companies like Finia, which makes turbochargers, a spinoff from BorgWarner. Uh, the, the internal combustion engine is not dead yet, uh, we think represents value. So small and mid-cap value trading at very reasonable prices, while the S&P 500 is probably a little stretched here. How about on the financial side? We often talk about the investments that you make in banks. Uh, we're a year removed from a banking crisis on the regional side of things. It percolated a little bit in the last couple of weeks here, months. Uh, is there anything attractive on the financial side? I, I do want to own names that are hurt by the inverted yield curve that we have now because we think that that will be gone in a year. So names like Goldman Sachs, they have big positions that are often long and they are financed shorter. And so they get hurt by an inverted yield curve, but that I think is going to get cured here. And so Goldman is under earning its potential in a more normal interest rate environment. Northern Trust is a similar structure that's been hurt by um, the inverted yield curve. So you're going to want to own names here that do well when we return to normal. All right. Charles Bobrinskoy with Ariel Investments. Charlie, thank you very much, sir. Thanks, Don. All right. Coming up on the show, the growing weight loss market is having ripple effects across multiple industries, including gyms and health clubs, maybe obviously. The CEO of Lifetime joins us next to discuss fresh off an earnings beat with that stock popping roughly 11 percent on those results. Plus, we'll get a reality check here on luxury real estate with the CEO of Douglas Elliman. An inside look at where the ultra wealthy are spending their money and what it says about the health of the overall housing market. The Exchange is back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Shares of premium fitness club Lifetime up around 12 to 13 percent after jumping as much as 20 percent earlier on. Following a beat on both the top and bottom lines, revenue, by the way, up nearly 20 percent on a year over year basis. This as demand for those so-called GLP-1 weight loss drugs continues to surge. And the company is hoping to capitalize on that trend with a new program offering 
those GLP-1 drugs to its members. For more on this story, let's bring in Lifetime founder and CEO Baram Akadi. Uh, Baram, thank you very much for joining us here on The Exchange. Uh, this is all the rage right now, and I, I know that you know this because we talk about GLP-1s and weight loss, Ozempic, Wegovi, Manjaro, everything ad nauseum these days. How much has the fitness landscape changed given the advent of some of these drugs, and how is it affecting Lifetime? Yeah, it hasn't been as much as the media thinks. I think the, uh, the, the, the drug is a working drug. It's a mega trend. It's, gonna, it's here to stay. There's no denial of that. Uh, the people who do this, obviously, they're, gonna, they're losing weight. Uh, they're also losing a lot of muscle mass. And anybody that's getting the right instruction, they're told that they need to continue to do exercise training, weight training, and making sure that they balance all of this with good nutrition and good exercise. So the clubs should be a net positive, is particularly positive for us because these customers are the high end of the customer. They're spending $500 to $1,000 a month on this drug. They need the appropriate facilities and professionals to help them navigate through the balance of this thing. Let's so talk- for us, has been no negative, just positive. Well, let's talk about that because the facilities that you operate, you're starting a program where your club members who participate in those clubs or live in facilities that you guys have put up will now have access to physicians and medical professionals that can help create plans featuring things like GLP-1 drugs. Take us through the plan there and why we're doing it. Okay, so Lifetime, you know, for for years, we think of ourselves as a high-end leisure company uh, focused on total health and well-being. So we had been building clinics inside of our clubs. We have uh, 50, 60 locations right now with the chiropractic physical therapy clinics. We have 15, 20 locations that have full-blown medical clinics in them. And so what we have the ability in every market to launch Miura uh, by lifetime, which is basically allows the people to have a completely integrated exercise if they need the peptides, they need the GLP, they need any sort of a a longevity program, the, all packaged in as an integrated answer, which is what people really need. Now, this is also interesting in my mind because it's not just about these athletic clubs, so to speak. You're also engaged in the development and building of actual housing properties that actually right. have these types of facilities in them. I know this because a neighboring town of mine has one under construction right now. I wonder right. what, what is the demand profile for housing on the lifetime side of things, featuring these types of benefits, as opposed to just say the city athletic club or urban athletic club that you have as gyms. Yeah, so when, when, you, when you think about what's uh, naturally and environmentally, uh, uh, intuitively environmentally friendly, is to create an environment, a village, where people can live, they can work, they can exercise, they can get their medical help, they can get their... So the Lifetime Living attached with the Lifetime Athletic Club, a big example of this is in Chicago, uh, which a, a development uh, friend of ours, Jim Lettinger, developed 900 apartment units, Whole Foods, 110,000 square feet club with a 50, 60,000 square feet beach club, all the, all the components. These are hugely successful, faster ramp for the apartment buildings, 
higher rates per square foot and lower attrition rates, which is a key, those are three key KPIs. And lifetime can dramatically change all those KPIs. So we are in literally 50 uh, you know, deals that we're in the pipeline where we're talking about building high rises that have the whole, the whole village concept. Uh, so this is, this is really the way uh, life will shape up in America. More village that has everything for people in closer proximity, so less driving. Baram, we're looking at the pictures behind the shot that you have right here behind me. You right. can see the real estate behind you in the, the mid-high-rise thing. Right. The one thing I think about there that maybe a lot of people don't is interest rates because you are in real estate. How concerned right. are you about what's happening with the, growth, the, the macro environment right now and the rate picture and the outlook? Yeah, so we, we have about 16, 17 million a square feet that is already built. Leases are fixed within certain you know, fixed bumps in them. We, so the, actually the overall inflation or higher interest rate is our friend, it's not our enemy. Now, that will complicate the, the development a little bit, but not by much. We, it's nothing that we can't overcome by adjusting their overall equation. So we are, we're building the, you know, the, in, the incremental, we have so much margin in our business that an incremental one and a half or 2% interest rate uh, you know, temporarily for two years or three years, isn't going to impact our strategy or our growth at all. All right. Barama Kradi with Lifetime, thank you very much. Please update us again soon, sir. Thank you so much. All right. By the way, an estimated 5 million people are already using those GLP-1 drugs I just mentioned early on, but there are still plenty we have yet to learn about the long-term effects. CNBC's own Melissa Lee takes a closer look in our new documentary, Big Shot, the Ozempic Revolution. In 2018, Novo launched the diabetes drug many started using off-label to slim down. Ozempic, followed by Rebelsis, a daily pill, and then Wagovi to treat obesity, all made with semaglutide. Rival Lilly countered with a one-two punch, releasing Monjaro, followed by Zepbound, both with its active ingredient, terzepatide. Different companies are trying to combine different mechanisms. Lilly is a leader here, and uh, we, we plan to make it hard to be caught. I believe we have picked the best mechanisms to combine, so even if some of the competitors succeed, we're still going to be a successful company. And we're just beginning to see the drug's potential on everything from sleep apnea to kidney disease and Alzheimer's, many illnesses associated with obesity. Was there sort of a light bulb moment when you thought, wow, this could be a game changer in terms of how we treat obesity. Yeah, when we started to see the data come out with the profound weight loss and in the more recent studies showing reductions in cardiovascular risk, I think we probably will unmask more safety issues. My hope is they're not profound, that they're predictable, but time will tell. All right, that's just a sample. You can watch the full documentary premiering tomorrow night at 10 p.m. Eastern Time and Pacific right here on CNBC. Well, still ahead on the show, the numbers and narratives to know before Paramount, HP, and Birkenstock report their results. That's all ahead in earnings exchange coming up. But first, CNBC's first ever change makers list is out, featuring 50 women transforming business and philanthropy. We'll tell you who's on the list, how we picked them, and all of that when we come back in just 30 seconds.
Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Today we're unveiling the first ever CNBC Changemakers list, 50 women transforming business and philanthropy. The 2024 Changemakers span 17 sectors, including 15 startup CEOs and founders and 11 public company CEOs. We have five women deploying new tech to jumpstart philanthropic impact and four women shaking up sports. To put together this list, we considered quantitative metrics of these women's reach and applied a qualitative analysis to measure their impact with particular attention to their accomplishments in the past year. Now, these leaders have demonstrated transformation, growth, innovation, and success, many of them taking new approaches to fixing broken systems. And a number of them are serving female consumers with new options, such as Maven CEO Kate Ryder, who's reimagining women's health care, Miel Organics founder Monique Rodriguez, creating new options for natural hair care. We have the National Women's Soccer League chief Jessica Berman. She's proving the appeal of women's sports and is working to close the sports pay gap. We also have several women forging new paths in renewable energy. Dandelion Energy co-founder and president Kathy Hannon is working to bring geothermal energy mainstream, while 12's Atosha Cave is turning carbon dioxide into fuel. These changemaker stories are inspiring and in some cases very surprising. And they showcase adaptability and resilience. Dom? All right, Julia, it looks like, though, a lot of these changemakers are in the healthcare business. Why do you think right now the sector is so big? We just talked a lot about it in our last segment. That's right. So about 22% of the women in the list are in the pharma or healthcare space. A lot of that comes down to the fact that women tend to be decision makers when it comes to healthcare. We also have a number of women who are leading the charge in these GLP-1s. We have the CEO of Weight Watchers, Seema Sistani, who made the very controversial move to pivot that company to focus on um, that GLP-1 drugs. Uh, and then we also have women who are at AstraZeneca and Eli Lilly and not Ashkenazi and Adrahan. Sarin, and they have been really instrumental in the likes of securing extra manufacturing capacity so they can ramp up the production of GLP-1s and other really life-changing and life-saving drugs. Julia, this is great because it's, it's like to tomorrow's news today. We're looking at all those people who are going to make an impact down the line. This is the first one. What's next for the franchise? This is the first one. We want to keep it up, Dom. I have to say you can find much more on this list on CNBC.com slash Changemakers. You could read all of these amazing women's bios. And we're also going to have an event April 18th in New York to celebrate this Changemakers list. And it's going to be an annual thing. Every year we will highlight 50 new and different names so we can learn about all these amazing stories. All right. And there was that QR code if you want to request an invite. Julia, thank you very much. We look forward to everything Changemakers going forward. We'll see you soon. Thanks, Tom. All right, now to Tyler Matheson for a CNBC News update. Hi, Ty. Dom, thank you very much. Demonstrators gathered at the Alabama State House today demanding lawmakers protect IVF providers and patients by guaranteeing legal access. The state Supreme Court ruled earlier this month that frozen embryos were considered children, with providers suspecting, suspending excuse me, services as they weighed the legal impact of the decision. 
Pope Francis was briefly taken to a hospital today. The Vatican said in a statement that the pontiff, who had a mild case of the flu, recently went in for diagnostic testing, but did not share more details. This follows a series of health concerns for the Pope, the most recent being a hospitalization back in June. And Prince Harry lost a court challenge against the British government's decision to deny him a security detail funded by taxpayers after he stepped down from, down from royal duties in 2020. The prince's lawyers argued that the government acted irrationally and didn't follow its own policies to do a risk analysis of his safety. Prince Harry vowed to appeal that decision. Don, back to you. All right, Tyler Matheson, thank you very much for those news updates there. Coming up on the show, an inside look at the health of the luxury real estate market with the CEO of Douglas Elliman Plus. The latest housing data on the overall market, including how some buyers are getting around those pesky higher interest rates. Welcome back to the show. Mortgage demand is dropping again last week as interest rates sit stubbornly high. Diana Olick now joins us with the latest details there. Hi, Di. Hey, Dom. Yeah, that 7% handle on the 30-year fix continues to hit mortgage demand. Total application volume dropped nearly 6% last week compared with the previous week. This is the average rate on the 30-year fix dropped a tiny bit to 7.04% from 7.06 for loans with 20% down. Rates are off that last peak of 8% in October, but they're up from the 6% range that we saw for much of the winter. So refinance application dropped 7% for the week. They were 1% lower than a year ago. There are just very few current borrowers with rates higher than today's who could therefore benefit. Applications for a mortgage to buy a home dropped 5% for the week and were 12% lower year over year. Home prices are at record highs, and when you add higher interest rates, it just knocks buyers out. Dom? All right. Given today's higher mortgage rates and the numbers you just laid out and the tight supply of homes for sale, how exactly are buyers working the system to still stay competitive and afford that home that they want? Well, so, Dom, we're hearing a lot about concessions and so-called hacks from both lenders and real estate agents. So I'm going to give you a few examples. First one is seller-funded interest rate buy-downs on the mortgage. Now, these were basically non-existent just a few years ago when rates were low. Now they're the number one tool. Builders have been doing it, but a seller can also buy down the rate for the buyer for one to three years with the expectation that rates will drop by then and then the buyer can refinance. It's much cheaper for the seller than lowering the price of the home to get to that affordable monthly payment. Then also, some lenders are wooing buyers by offering a free refinance if and when rates come down. So the borrower still has to pay title insurance and taxes, but zero lender fees. Another option, proof of cash. This is interesting. It's an incentive to the seller to take a buyer's offer in today's competitive market. The buyer shows that they have the cash, but they reserve the right to get a mortgage prior to closing if they want. It makes their offer stronger because it's considered a cash offer and the seller has the guarantee, although they don't have to put off the cash. Finally, use the cash. Go all cash. That actually made up 32% of January sales, according to the realtors, and that's the highest in nearly a decade. How do you get the cash? Well, some people borrow from parents. Some might take out a loan against an investment portfolio. And some will even pool and buy with their friends for a house, some young people. And then they take out a mortgage later to get the savings. Creative, All good hacks, no? Creative financing, for sure, Diana. <laughs> All right, switching gears now to a segment of the housing market that's showing no signs of a slowdown, luxury real estate. Now, Diana laid out some of those points there eloquently. According to the latest report from Douglas Elliman, though, a quarter of America's ultra-rich, ultra-rich, plan to buy another home this year on top of the 
get this, four, four that they already own. For more, let's bring in Douglas Elliman CEO, Scott Durkin, alongside with CNBC's wealth editor, Robert Frank. Uh, Robert, Diana, laid out what it's like for most of us when we talk about real estate, but this is not the same set of rules that the ultra-rich are Well, some of the rules are the same. We've got low supply, we've got falling sales, but this group is, tends to be all cash, so it's really a matter of where they see value. And so that market has had a little more supply and more buyers because they're not as reliant on interest rates. I mean, Scott, Robert lays all of this stuff out. I wonder if you could just give us the big picture, if you will, on what's happening with real estate at the high end. Well, the very high end really hasn't had, I would say, a hiccup like the the rest of the market. So the ultra high net worth uh, buyers, they tend to they look at that market, but they tend to rely on their own private banking and their own uh, assets to to fund everything. So I think they may use it to perhaps get a better deal on something they're buying. So that that's that's paramount. And and I think that they know that there's there are great deals in times of like this. So they're taking complete advantage of it. And Scott, the Douglas Elliman Knight Frank Wealth Report, which is out today, shows that one in four of the ultra wealthy plan to buy a house in the next year. And lifestyle is their number one priority. That's very different from the past where pre-pandemic it was where your job is, where the best education for your kids are. How has the pandemic changed the priorities for where the wealthy want to live and buy real estate? The pandemic's changed it in a way that uh, most uh buyers that are looking for that second, third, or fourth home, they realize now that for the most part, they're going to spend 75, 80% of their time in the home. So that's important. So the location, the environment, the amenities, uh, branded living has, is huge now with all the, the luxury hotel chains. They, they want to make sure that the experience and most of that experience is at home, will be just as nice in any of the one to five homes they may have. So that's, that's why we've seen huge price increases in Aspen, Palm Beach, the Hamptons, Nantucket. What used to be considered resort communities now are kind of full-time main residence communities. I was also surprised in the report at the number of Americans going overseas. Americans right now were the number one buyers of ultra-prime real estate in London. That's 10 million pounds plus. They used to be the Russians and the Saudis. Now it's the Americans. You see similar in Italy, in Portugal, in France. Do you see Americans going overseas? And what's the driver there? Well, I think the biggest driver was the exchange rate, uh, the dollar to the euro. It made it really affordable. It was almost one-to-one six months ago. So that in and of itself has has gotten a lot of people and the attention over there. I think the rest of the world and ter- mainly Europe, they um, they you can get something there that might cost five or ten times more here in the states, but over there it's really uh, low. You so you almost laugh, say, "Hey, I can get a castle for two million dollars." I think people's dreams are able to uh, happen now, and since the pandemic, people are like, "Why am I waiting? I need to do this now." And the prices are right, and the properties are just exceptional. Scott, this this is the curious part for me. A, a lot of folks on that ultra wealthy range that Robert talks about so much, they didn't get there by being dumb, so to speak, with their money, right? Real estate at these levels, how much do you think wealthy buyers are looking for a business-like return on their investment, as opposed to just owning something that they want to own in the luxury part of the market and feel comfortable saying that they live there or actually have the property? 
Well, you brought up a great point. I think the investors, especially the ones that work with us at Douglas Salmon, they are looking for those great deals. And I'm talking commercial deals where there's a return for them or distressed properties where they can get them on the, on the lower and the cheaper side. I always say that in markets like this, especially markets, the commercial and retail, uh, billionaires are made because they swoop in and get fantastic deals on them. I would say, John, just to, to close, the number two priority for these people when they buy a house, number one is lifestyle, number two is investment. And by the way, the number one market in the world this year Where? for luxury real estate investment will be Auckland, New Zealand. Wow. Beautiful place, beautiful country if you haven't been there. But uh, they suffered a big decline, so now they're expected to price increases of over 10% this year. That's going to be the best market in the world. Okay, so though that's Robert. Now, now Scott, in your experience, where is there the opportunity? What, what geography still has hidden value? Oh, there's hidden value. I always say, excuse me, the periphery of any market, whether it be Los Angeles, New York, Miami, Palm Beach, just go out a few miles and you'll get great deals because those are aspirational sellers. And the, and eventually, if we if this keeps happening, especially in Florida, uh, they will be reached. You will have almost the same thing you would have had going in further into town and paying you know, 30, 40 percent more. So look on the periphery of every market you're interested in. All right. Scott Durkin and Robert Frank, thank you both very much for that look into the real estate market. All right, coming up on the show, money is pouring back into municipal funds. ETF seeing net inflows for the first week in three. Nuveen sees more room to run for that. The tax-exempt bonds to buy now, next. And during February, we are celebrating Black Heritage. Here is AT&T Chief Financial Officer Pascal Desrochers sharing his story. The opportunities that come from being a black man in the C-suite are, uh, are enormous, and so are the responsibilities. I understand that I am an example for others to look to, to inspire, and uh, I have a responsibility to make sure that I am lifting as I climb, providing opportunities for other people who are underrepresented in the C-suite. Welcome back to The Exchange. Rick Santelli here, live on the floor of the CBOE with a special guest today, Dan Close of Nuveen. Topic, munis. Dan, welcome. What a great training floor, huh? Awesome. Thank you so much for having me, Rick. All right, 2024, a lot of things are different than last year. And one of the big differences, especially in the muni space, is the flows are starting to look a little bit more aggressive. Maybe you can tell me what investors are looking at to make it less volatile and more optimistic with regard to inflows. Yeah, we've seen four and a half billion in inflows so far this year, which I think is great, especially given the volatility we saw in 2022, 2023. But I think investors are taking a step back, looking at the uh, tax exempt market and saying, I could get more yield on a tax equivalent basis by being in munis than by being in mortgages, by being in corporates, agencies, govies. And I think they're taking a look at that and saying, I wanna lock in yields right now because we're at the highest level in yields to start the year since 2011. So this really isn't necessarily about an election year 2024 or maybe current tax policy that may change the next several years. Just on the surface right now, that tax advantage puts it 
competitively with corporates and govies. That's right, that's right. And, and the tax advantage, it is the eighth wonder of the world. It is truly how we get our infrastructure financed. It's something that really does make a difference, but it is a very high yield when you look at it on a tax equivalent basis. And so if you think that taxes are going to go up, the value of the muni exemption only goes up. If you think the government is only going to finance these deficits with... Well, what about supply? Now, you bring up a good sure, point. Sure. One of the things that makes me nervous about interest rates in general going up, which means the price of treasuries and corporates may go down, is because we have so much debt and we're right. going to have so much treasury issuance. Right. How is that in the muni world? Yeah, it's, it's completely different. In the muni world, we've seen the muni market only grow by about 5% cumulatively since 2009. That's less than one half of 1% a year. You know, compare that to treasuries. Three and so a half treasuries times. treasuries is what, a $26 trillion market? $26 what trillion are we talking about with regard to munis? $4 trillion market and a market that's actually been shrinking over time because more bond calls, more bonds being matured than new issue paper. And what about the Fed? Now, everybody is going crazy over whether it's one meeting or another meeting. Ultimately, you have people out there that say maybe they're not going to lower rates at all if inflation's sticking. We have inflation data tomorrow. Right, right. How does the Fed future with regard to policy affect muni positions now? Yeah, so if you look at the last time we even had a whiff of the Fed looking to, looking to cut rates, it was really the, the fourth quarter of 2023. Munis went up 8%. So we keep on telling investors munis don't need to do much in 2024 to have a very good year because of these elevated rates. But if the Fed does cut, Three times is what we think it's going to be in 2024. We do see a rally because cash becomes more expensive. Oh, absolutely. You, know, you, you look at what T-bills are yielding. You look at what uh, money market funds are yielding. If it all of a sudden becomes more expensive, we think those investors migrate over into the meaning. Now, market. what about credit risk? Now, let's separate that into two issues. The default issue, let's get to in a minute. But with regard to ratings and upgrades right. and downgrades, what's that landscape look like? So for the last three years, if you look at Moody's, S&P, they've upgraded four to one, four times more than downgraded. And that's just because of all the COVID money that's come in. Five rounds of COVID financing, the last round, the CARES Act. $350 billion came into the municipal market. All right, so you brought up a great point. Now, we're running closely out of time. Uh, COVID money, lots of states, lots of cities, they took this money. Some of them did good things with it, some of them not so good. California now is what? Anywhere from 48 to $60 billion deficit. But I was shocked. Illinois seems to be doing pretty good. Your final thoughts on why Illinois might be a good place to look for potential muni investments. Illinois is just, they're on the right path right now. If you look at the state, three years of budget surpluses, they actually have a rainy day fund for the first time since 2004, more than $2 billion. And the spreads are still there. You could go in and pick up some decent value. Excellent. Dan, it's been an enjoyable conversation regarding munis. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. Dom. Back to you. All right, Rick, Dan, thank you guys very much for that fascinating Muni conversation. Coming up on this show, streaming systems and shoes, sandals to be exact. We've got the action, the story, and the trade on Paramount, HP, and Birkenstock ahead of their results. Earnings exchange is coming up next. Keep it right here. Welcome back to The Exchange. We are trading content, computers, and clogs in today's earnings exchange with Paramount Global, HP Inc., and Birkenstock on deck. So here with our trade is Courtney Garcia at Payne Capital Management, Senior Wealth Advisor. She's also a CNBC contributor. Uh, Courtney, great to have you here. We'll start off with Paramount. Shares are on pace for their fourth straight negative week. 
Our own Alex Sherman just yesterday reporting that Warner Brothers has ended takeover talks. Guggenheim is watching to see if a strategic bundle is in the cards as linear revenue declines and streaming ads decelerate. Courtney, what would you do here with Paramount? The momentum has been decidedly negative. It has, and I think that's actually probably a reason you want to take a look at this, because it's definitely been under selling pressure, is a lot of the streaming services in general have really gone through a tough period here, and their earnings and profitability may not be to the point they were at the height of linear TV, um, but they are leaning into the streaming services, and I think the key to them is really going to be their sports content, right? They have NFL rights and March Madness all the way going out through 2030. The way they're bundling their services, they're going to have additional customer retention rates. It's hard to cancel something. When you have like your kids watching Nickelodeon, you're watching Showtime, you're your spouse is watching sports. I mean, all that is together in there, and they're really leaning into that as a long-term strategy. And this is someone who's really been burning through cash for four quarters, but finally has positive free cash flow. And they're continuing to be in the headlines with those M&A activity, which I don't think is a reason to buy that in and of itself. You're seeing those things fall through, but I think it does lead to the argument that it is undervalued and maybe something to look at for the long-term. All right. There's the trade there on uh, what's happy with Paramount. Let's move on to HP Inc. The PC maker is heading for its fourth positive month. In five, mm -hmm. HSBC is watching PC demand and cost-cutting efforts, writing that AI-powered computers could bring the market out of its current slump. Courtney, how would we play the computer hardware side? You absolutely want to take a look at this. Um, really, this is kind of the return to hardware you're seeing. But what happened in COVID is everybody and their moms needed a new computer because we were working from home. And it really led to this kind of a misleading demand picture, which fell off a cliff. But there tends to be about a three-year cycle on PCs. And so now you're starting to see everybody's going to need to upgrade those. So 2024 does look like you're going to have increased demand there. And that's absolutely something HP is going to benefit from. But you pointed this out also. We're in the, the year of artificial intelligence or the world of artificial intelligence. So we're likely going to need devices that are AI equipped. So longer term, that's going to absolutely lead to more demand there. This also trades about eight times earnings, less than one time sales, a 3.8% dividend. I think for all those reasons, it's absolutely something you want to take a look at. All right. Multiple, multiple reasons why we want to take a look at that. And finally, Courtney, Birkenstock is up 12% since its October IPO. UBS is focusing on brand strength and direct-to-consumer sales as the company tightly manages inventory to maintain strong pricing power. Uh, this is a pretty nice chart here. Courtney, how would you trade Birkenstock? Yeah, I mean, unlike many IPOs, this one came out as a company that not only is profitable, it has healthy margins. Um, they actually have, you're talking about increased demand. You actually saw millennials buying more Birkenstocks after there was Birkenstocks in the Barbie movie, which I thought was fun. Um, but actually, I would stay away from that because I think despite it being a great brand, it trades very expensively. It trades about 40 times next year's earnings. And we're in this environment now where consumers are under pressure with inflation. So we're having to choose where we're spending our money. And you're seeing people are shifting to things like travel and leisure as opposed to goods. I think that's something that's probably going to continue to pressure them. With those high multiples, I don't know if that can be justified currently. All right, Birkenstock. I've been wearing those things since I was in high school as a <laughs> Northern California kid. All right, so we do have a couple seconds left here. Courtney, let's talk about the broader markets overall. We are seeing a slew of record highs across not just technology, but industrial names, other types of names in the S&P 500. Do you feel more constructive on what's happening right now? Absolutely. This is what we've been wanting to see. I think people have been hopeful after October that we're starting to see this, this market rally broaden out because this is really what you want for continued strength. It's not just five or seven companies leading the whole rally. You want to see the entire sectors going stronger. And that's, I think, more indicative that you can see a continued rally going forward. So we just hit all new highs. But remember, those new highs that we hit the last couple of weeks in the S&P from like two years ago, the markets haven't gone a whole lot of anywhere. But we need a broad rally. You're really starting to see that. And I think we want to continue to see that as we look forward here. 
And Courtney, just a few seconds left. What do you think is your favorite sector out there right now? Uh, we're definitely continuing to look at things like healthcare and small cap. You want to fa favor some of those things that are, are out of value, but will continue to increase if um, inflation and interest rates do come down later this year. All right. That was Courtney Garcia, Payne Capital Management. Great to get your thoughts. Thank you very much. We'll see you soon, Courtney. Thanks for having me. All right. That does it for The Exchange. Coming up on Power Lunch, Apple has sat out the recent tech rally, but Bank of America sees bullish signals ahead. That's on the other side of this quick break. And by the way, stocks are near their session highs right now. The S&P 500 is just about flat on the session, only down about three points. The Dow down about 56. Keep it right here. Power Lunch is up after this. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.